0: Everybody's energetic and talkative this morning. I'm going to do something that I probably have not seen done in a church in, I don't know, a great number of years, but apparently when the children left and all the kids city workers left, this whole section right here became so empty, and I'm either going to have to have y'all move forward, or I'm going to have to move my table that way, so I'm going to just, y'all just move up, just just come on up some this morning. I know. Apparently, all of the children and children's workers were sitting right there this morning. I'm going to make some of them move up. so I don't feel so. I feel, I felt alone up here, very far away, very distant. (laughs) That's the, I don't know. That's the teacher in me, I guess, is what that is. Man, it's so good to be here this morning with you guys. Thanks for coming. It's always a good sign when people decide to go ahead and come on to church, even when they know the pastor's out of town because they never know who's going to be showing up to preach. So, and if you didn't know the pastor was out of, t- was out of town today and you came anyway, well, hey, good for you. <laughs> but really excited to be here with you this morning. You know, I have to tell you, um, I've known I was going to preach this Sunday for, for quite a while as we were kind of planning out the summer and knowing when people were going to be out. I um, was really unsure of what God was going to have me share this morning. And a couple of weeks ago, I kind of stumbled upon a verse that really stuck with me. And I really didn't think that it was going to turn into a message. But I really feel like that it, it, it is. And um, it may apply to you today. It may not apply to you today. But I promise you that at some point in your life it will. Because um, we all go through this. So if we could, I want to put up this verse from Hosea chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. I want to read this verse today. And, and then we're going to pray and get started. Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness And speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards and will make the valley of Accor a door of hope. There she will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. Focusing in the valley of Accor, Accor literally means the valley of trouble. There I will give her back her vineyards and will make the valley of trouble a door of hope. Lord, I just come before you today. I thank you, God, for your word. I thank you, Lord, even as our our friend Mr. Jones said this morning and talked about how your word does not return void, that there is purpose for every scripture, and that you speak life to us today through your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Listen, um, I want to talk a little bit about desert today, and what's interesting about the desert and and kind of just fact-checking and looking about things is that for some place to be considered a desert, it has to have less than 10 inches of rainfall a year, less than 10 inches. Now, recently here in Tennessee, it's felt like we've had 10 inches of rain every other day. Um, It looks like the jungle outside. My backyard is lush and not in a good way. There could be all manner of animals living out there. Um, And so we have not experienced that. But, you know, there are parts of our country right now that are experiencing drought. California is going through a very serious time of a lack of water. And so a desert, it's kind of hard for us here in West Tennessee to grasp what desert means. But less than 10 inches of rainfall a year. Now that would be in and of itself enough to be not good. But the interesting thing is about the temperature in the desert. That in the desert, generally the temperature can reach up to 131 degrees Fahrenheit. But then in the evening... It can be freezing temperatures. And so you've got this vast extremes. The desert is a place of extremes. It's barren. It's very, very barren. Not much can survive in that level of extremeness. And yet the desert is mentioned very often in the Bible. Very often, especially David. He experiences a lot of time in the desert. And so we have to look at that there's spiritually, there's a significance to the desert because it's mentioned so much. And so many people, I mean, obviously the children of Israel got stuck there for a while and really realizing the extremes of the desert. That is not exactly someplace I would even want to spend four hours, let alone 40 years. But the desert and the wilderness, that's the same thing. It was, it was a vast and barren and extreme environment that is really considered uninhabitable. People cannot really survive well there. And so there's a significance in that. And we see David specifically really experiences a lot of time there. And we realize that it's not just about the physical location. But David, not only when he was in the desert physically, he was going through the desert spiritually. He was never somewhere physically that it did not have spiritual significance. The Bible uses that in his word to teach us things. And so David was not only physically in the desert, but he was spiritually in a desert. And I want to look today at Psalms chapter 63 In this particular passage of scripture, David, it says that this is a psalm of David when he was in the desert of Judah. Now, why was he in the desert this particular time? Well, how many of you know nothing can make you crazy like family can make you crazy? And some of you parents may understand that really nobody can make you crazy like your children can make you crazy. Well, David had a family problem and his family problem was his son, Absalom, who had created a revolt against him. And basically, David had had to flee. And so not only was he in the physical desert, but emotionally and spiritually, he was in the desert. He was there because of this revolt against some, of someone that he loved, right? I mean, because no matter how ugly your child is, you still love them. And so here this child that he loves has revolted against him, and now he is in the desert. Now, I want you to imagine these circumstances. I don't know that my words to the Lord would be exactly what David's were. (laughs) But this is what we can learn from him. So let's look at Psalms chapter 63. Oh, God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. I don't know that my first words to God in that situation (laughs) would have been, Oh God, you are my God, and earnestly I seek you. Mine probably would have been, oh God, where's the water? (laughs) Oh God, earnestly, I really need some shade. And it would have been focused on me. Let's just be honest, right? But here we see David in a very serious situation, in a very barren and dry place, and his heart begins to cry out for God. And I think there's something that we can learn from that today. And I think one of the hardest things is to try to find a purpose. We're in a desert time in our life. And I think all of us here, and from the youngest to the oldest, that we can admit that we have gone through times of being in a desert. Even if we could be surrounded by the most loving people in the world, we can still feel alone. Even when we have a knowledge and a sense that we know God is real, and that we we believe in him with all of our heart, we can feel very distant from him and very dry spiritually. And there can be times when we really have grown cold to God, that there seems to be an extreme in our relationship with him, and that we seem to be very barren and very desperate for him, for relationship, for more than we could ever imagine. And in that verse in Hosea, it says, this is God talking to the people of Israel right after he has outlined all these kind of horrible things that are happening to them because they have turned against him. And then he begins right here at the beginning of chapter in that chapter 2, verse 14, he begins to tell them what he is going to do to them as he begins to bring them back to him. And the first thing he does in his process of bringing them back to him is to lead them into the desert again. It says, I will allure her to the desert and I will speak tenderly to her. And I'm going to tell you something. I don't know if any of you have ever tried um, to read while the TV is on and your children or kids or other people are in the room running around, right? Anybody ever read the same sentence five times? Yeah? Yeah? So, (laughs) a lot of times that's kind of how we got so much going on around us, right? And we can have a lot of troubles and a lot of problems. Anybody ever tried to just pray and seek God, and all you're doing is adding up your bills in your brain? And you're like, dear God, I just want to thank you, $643.72. Oh, I mean, what I was trying to say, God, (laughs) And we, we have all of this stuff kind of swirling around us. And what we learn is is that God really listen, even Jesus took alone time. He got away from people. And sometimes for God to really speak to us, he has to get us alone. I mean, the Israelites learned a lot in that years, those years of wandering. And sometimes he has to get us alone, and we see here in Hosea that he begins to say that "I will bring you out into the wilderness, and I will speak tenderly to you." You can't hear a tender voice in the middle of a city or in the busyness of life. You can only hear a tender voice when it's quiet. And sometimes quiet means alone, and sometimes quiet means desert. But there's a purpose in those times. And so I want to be clear today, you may not be feeling very much like you're in a desert. I mean, you may be feeling like you're in a really good place today. And I want to tell you, the first time I ever heard someone teach on the desert time, it really didn't mean anything to me because I wasn't there. But in years since... As I have walked through desert times in my own personal life, where I've looked at the Bible and read the words and it felt like I didn't even know what I was reading, where I've come into a worship service and felt almost out of place to lift my hands because I don't feel a connection to God, I feel cold and I feel barren and I've gone through those seasons in my life, I've begun to realize that when I see myself here, and when I'm going through a time of barrenness, and when I'm going through a time of desert, and when I'm feeling alone, and when I'm feeling isolated, and when I'm feeling distant from the God that I love, and that I believe in, and when I'm feeling that separation, and that barrenness, and it feels hot, and then it feels cold, and it feels extreme, and I am thirsty, and when I realize, hold on, I'm here what's my purpose? God, why am I here? Why am I feeling this way? What's going on? God, what are you trying to speak to me in this moment? We have all been in those times and in those places. And you know, sometimes in the Christian world, it's not okay to admit that. We feel like we have to always act like our devotional today was super powerful Right? Yes, I just felt the presence of the Lord. I just worshiped in my kitchen. And we just feel like we have to kind of put this out there that, yes, every day is a revival. But you know what some days are the desert and some days we are crying out for anything from God and we just feel alone and like why are we here what am i what is the purpose of this God where did you go He didn't go anywhere But we need to just be quiet and allow him to speak tenderly to us We must begin to see that, like David, there may be a desert going on around our lives. In our community, there is a desert. Our city, our country is dry. It is a dry and weary place. Can we agree on that? I mean, you aren't going to be able to get any refreshing from the world, you aren't going to be able to get any refreshing from circumstance. But we need to stop for a moment, and I want to encourage you today to think of something. Is that, just like David, he was surrounded by desert. But you know what David realized? Is that there may be a desert all around him, and his life may be barren and lonely right now. But there's one place that is never a desert, and that is in our heart. Because in our heart is where streams of living water live and flow. And the moment that we ask Jesus Christ to come into our lives and he imparted his spirit upon us, then that means that the rivers of living water live on the inside of us. And they flow through us. And so there may be a desert going on in our lives, but there is living water inside of us. And we have to find a way to tap into that and go into that place now, here's the thing about, about we have a choice here, and I want to talk today about feelings just for a minute. And feelings are so strong, aren't they? Right? Like our feeling. if your feelings get hurt, that's it. Done. Right? Somebody hurts your feeling, uh-uh. Tap out. No, you have to come back another day. <laughs> our feelings control so much of us. And we expect and feel like that we have to have a certain feeling to know that God is near us. And that I need to feel a certain way to know God is near. But we learn from David that sometimes our feelings have to die. And here's the thing about the desert is that when we are in it, see, the desert kills off everything, right? It kills off everything that is not really rooted and supposed to be there. And so when we're in a time of a desert, other things can't survive there. And listen, our feelings need fuel, don't they, right? The mood of your spouse fuels your feelings. The behavior of my children fuels my feelings, the balance in the bank fuels my feelings. How my hair looks fuels my feelings. I mean, let's be real, right? Lots of things. Our feelings need constant fuel to be changing. But here's the thing about in the desert. When we're in the desert, nothing's getting fuel. There's nothing. There's barrenness. And so if we can realize that there's a significance to being in the desert, because when we're in that place where it is barren, then everything else dies away. And the only thing that can survive there is our true need. Because let me tell you something. I don't know if anybody else has ever really needed to go to the bathroom before. But I remember being on this very same trip that our pastors are on right now. We were driving out there. I was like 15 years old. And all of the girls in my van needed to go to the bathroom. Now, here's what happens. The men were driving, and they didn't need to go to the bathroom. So they weren't looking for a place to stop. But we were starting to hallucinate like porta-potties in the middle of the desert. Like we had to go so desperately that nothing else mattered. We didn't care what was going on. We just needed a bathroom. And I remember that we finally convinced them like it is urgent And so they see this little gas station, and gas station is a very, um, I'm, I'm heaping lots of praise there to call it a gas station. It was a building that may or may not have had a functioning gas pump at one time. But to us, it was like, I mean, just an oasis. And we jumped out of that van and ran I mean, like, literally, like, we were running to our long-lost family. We ran to that bathroom. It was urgent. Nothing else mattered. Single focus. That was our need. That was what we had to have in that moment. I'm telling you, it wouldn't have mattered if somebody was waving $100 bills at me between me and that bathroom. Could have been $100 bills. I wasn't going to stop because I had a need, and I was focused on it, right? And nothing else mattered. And I realized now, after, that that was the worst, most disgusting restroom I have ever been in in the entirety of my life. And I have been into the very dark places of Mexico. And I'm telling you that this restroom in New Mexico was the worst I'd ever been in in my life. But in that moment, I was so desperate. So here's the thing about when we're literally in the desert is that our need becomes very apparent. It becomes the primary thing that we see and we are focused on. And it's amazing how everything else can become blurry and no longer important when we have a need that is realized. And in this passage of Scripture, we see that David is in the desert. And you know what? Everything else became no longer important because he realized what was his real need in that desert. What did he really need? He needed God. He was desperate for him. And his need became realized. His feelings died And his true need was revealed. And what we have to focus on is when we get in these times where we realize, like, I'm feeling alone. I'm feeling abandoned. I'm feeling insecure. I'm feeling like nobody is with me. Nobody understands what I'm going through. I'm feeling disconnected from God. I'm feeling very absent from his presence. That in that moment, we need to start saying, okay, wait a minute, God. You have brought me into this desert. Now, let me just focus on what my real need is. What do I really, really need? It's amazing when you ask and you're trying to teach children the difference between a want and a need. You know, we, we talk about this with our kids when we're doing, you know, classes on finances and things like this, you know. And we're trying to teach them the difference between a want and a need you want an xbox 360. you need dinner (laughs) and when it comes down to it you want air conditioning you need shelter and there's a difference between our wants and our needs. What do we want from God? We want to constantly feel his presence. And we want to live on a mountaintop relationship where we encounter God. And it's, it's like a revival every day of the week. And we want to kind of live in this mountaintop. But what do we need? We need God. We want all these other things. But sometimes we got to just get down to what our need is. And if I never have another day where I get goosebumps in the presence of God, that's not important because what I need from God is just him, him. I need him in my life. And whether I get all the feels and the extra stuff, that's not important. I need to focus on my need for God. And the desert will drive you there. In this, this scripture, man, I mean, how many of you, I'm pretty sure I've sang songs based off this scripture my whole life. Earnestly, I seek you. I thirst for you. Now, here's the thing about thirst. I have one point to make today, and I'm not going to preach for a really long time. Because I realize this is not one of those, like, um, happy, pass out cupcake type messages. But I want to just kind of get one point across to you today, and that is uh, the point of Thirst. Because thirst is a need, we can go a long time without food, right? But how long can we go without water? No, seriously. Somebody, Christy, what do y'all. Time? Like it's like three days, not if that maybe that long, depending on how healthy you are. I mean, we cannot survive without water. We can go without food and sustenance for a long period of time, but we cannot go without water. And so the very first thing that he says, I thirst for you. Here's the thing about thirst and why it is our first and foremost need. And what's amazing is is that really as humanity, it is our first physical need. We have to have water to survive. It is the key to survival. If people don't have water, they don't exist. They will not survive. And so there's something to be said that mirrored in our humanity and our spiritual life are the same need. We have a physical thirst. It's a need that we have to have to be able to survive. And we see a mirror in that spiritually in that we need to thirst for God. And we see this, I thirst for you. What does it mean to thirst for God? Well, let me tell you something about thirst, is it can't be reasoned with. When you're thirsty, you're thirsty. When you need water, you need water. You can't reason with thirst. You can't explain to your thirst how it needs to get in line, and we got other priorities. no. Your thirst demands to be heard, both physically and spiritually. We have a thirst. It can drive us to great lengths, right? We were at um, we went and watched the U.S. Men's National Soccer Team in Nashville on Friday. It was super exciting, um, but of course, my children, we were only going to get one drink because it cost forty-seven dollars. So. We had one drink, which promptly Leo, being the smallest person in the family, obviously needed the most. Um, And so by, you know, 27 minutes into this 90 minute game, the drink was gone. And it got to the point of desperation where I was like so thirsty. I was looking for like abandoned water bottles thought, hey, I'm a parent, I'm a teacher, I'm pretty much immune to everything, I'll just, I've already had all, I I mean, seriously, I'll be okay. And the cup was sitting down there. Now, mind you, both my children have had their hands in there getting the ice out of it, but I see the cup, and I'm like, "Mm, okay. And I open the lid, and there's just a tiny little bit in there. And here's where you have the choice, right? Remember what I said, you cannot reason with thirst, thirst takes top priority i was thirsty every bit of knowledge that my children's dirty hands from being at this stadium and playing outside had been in the cup it all didn't matter and i drank it and it was gross and it was lukewarm a little bit of coke a little bit of water mixed together lots of unknown items it did not matter I drank it. Because why? I could not reason with my thirst. It had to be done. It was either drink that or ask the little kid down in front of me if I could waterfall his Mountain Dew. Because it had to be dealt with. Those of you who don't know what waterfall is, it's where you take somebody else's drink and you just pour it into your mouth so that you don't put your mouth on their drink. Something you get used to if you're with teenagers a lot. But I was desperate, and I could not reason with my thirst. It had to be dealt with. It had to be quenched, right? It had to be quenched. And one of the most famous stories that we hear about in the Bible is Jesus saying to the woman at the well, right, drink of me and you will never thirst again. And, I mean, to me, I always thought, what does that even mean? How do I drink of Jesus, right? And as a human being, can we imagine what it would be to never be thirsty again? I mean, seriously, we are constantly having drinks in our hand. We have bought, we've become so accustomed now. We carry bottles of water with us everywhere we go. We constantly have something to drink. It's the most important thing. But could we imagine what it would be like to no longer physically be thirsty again? And yet Jesus says that we can spiritually, we don't have to be thirsty, that we can drink of him. But how do we do that? How do we do that? Well, I don't know if I've got an exact answer. But I want to talk a little bit about this scripture and how I think it points to what it means and how we can make a conscious choice to drink from the living water of Jesus Christ in our times when we are feeling very lost and very disconnected of how we can consciously make a choice to do that. I need steps. Does anybody else have a a list person? Kaylee's a list person. Who else is a list person? Yeah, some of you list people, right? I make lists for my lists a list of all the lists I need to make. Some people, we just like steps, right? And so for me, I need like some steps. Like, okay, God, how do I drink from you? Well, I want to look at the scripture because we see right off the bat that he says, I thirst for you. My whole body longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. Can anybody agree you've been there, right? You've been to that place where you are so thirsty for God and everything around you is dry and weary and you are disconnected and alone and you need desperately the presence of God. And so how do we do that? Let's look right off at the very beginning. In verse 2, it says, I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and glory. So what is the first thing that David does to begin to quench his thirst for God? Is he remembers all of the things that God has done for him. So the first thing when he acknowledges, I am in a desert, I am alone. I am disconnected. I need God. I am thirsty. What's the first thing he does to quench that thirst? Is he remembers the presence of God. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Does anybody in here have a testimony of some kind? I mean, has anybody experienced the goodness of God? Has anybody had God come through for you in a way that cannot be explained except for it being God? We need to remember God. Allow our testimony to build our faith. Begin to drink. Oh, I remember. Okay, God. I feel really disconnected right now. But you know what? I remember when I was in a really bad place. And you showed up. And you came through for me. I remember being in the depths of despair. And my phone rang. And it was a friend just wanting to check on me. I have been in your sanctuary. I have seen your power and your glory. I'm going to remember you, God. And then what's the next thing he does in verse 3? Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. He begins to praise God. So here he is. He is thirsty. And how does he quench this thirst, this desire for God? He starts by reminding himself that God is good. And that he has seen the mighty hand of God. And then he begins to praise God. I don't know that this would have been what I would. I mean, come on. This had to have been hard, right? He's there because his rogue son is revolting against him and pushing him out. This had to have been a tough choice, right? He was in a desperate place. And he chooses to remember the goodness of God despite the bad circumstances he's in. And he chooses to praise God for the love of God in his life, even though he is being persecuted. So he remembers him and he praises him. And the last thing he does is in verse 4, I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. Now what is significant? About the choice to lift up his hands. Now, listen, when we're all here in church together and we raise our hands, it doesn't feel weird, right? Because we're with a bunch of other people who are doing it, right? But how many of you have ever driven by somebody who is rocking out in their car, right? And you don't know what song they're singing, but they are going at it, okay? And then, and some of you are thinking that was me. I am that one rocking out in my car. And you look over and somebody's looking at you who's obviously listening to like NPR or something really boring. And you're over there just like having at it. And you realize, oh, party of one. Um, This is a little awkward, (laughs) right? And so here David is totally party of one in the desert by himself. And he chooses to not only think of the goodness of God and praise God, he chooses to lift his hands all alone. No worship leader saying, Come on, everybody, let's raise our hands together today, right? That's the crazy thing is when you're, like, at youth conferences or anywhere, really, somebody will say, let's all raise our hands, right? And 800 kids raise their hand. Why? Because there's strength in numbers, and I don't feel left out if we're all doing this, right? It's a totally different story when you're a teenager, though, and you come back to church, and you're standing next to your mom because you know what's going to happen, right? If you raise your hands, your mother's, oh, my God. Right? <laughs> She's, she's going to try her best to hold it in. But what she really wants to do is like run around the church like, my child is raising their hands. <laughs> okay. And so it, all of a sudden, when you feel like all eyes are on you and it's a party of one, it feels way weirder to lift your hands. <laughs> but here we see that David makes a choice in the middle of the desert when he's all alone to lift up his hands. There's significance in action, in doing something even when it feels weird. What else is interesting is, how many of you have ever, like, just been out of breath, and they tell you to, like, lift your hands up above your head, right? Raise your hands up. Why, why would they do that? And so, the internet, thankfully, I start looking up. Why do people tell you to raise your hands above your head if you're out of breath? And it really does create space, for your diaphragm to move, it increases your lung capacity to be able to stretch out and put your arms up. And all of a sudden there's more room for you to take a deeper breath when your hands are raised. If you're bent over, then you're decreasing that space for your breath and your lungs can't expand as fully. Your diaphragm can't expand as fully if it's being crushed because you're bent over. So here, David's natural desire, our posture, when we're feeling defeated and we're feeling alone, our natural desire, our posture is to cower down, right? To curl up and shield ourselves from the harsh environment of the desert. But what David does is he changes that posture and makes the decision to not cower down, but to stretch out and lift his hands up. What that does is it allows him to take in a deeper breath. It allows him to take in a deeper drink of God by making a choice to lift his hands even in the middle of the desert. So David is thirsty for God. He has a real need. And he does exactly the opposite of what his flesh would want to do. And he chooses to stand up, to stretch out, to reach towards God, to declare the goodness of God and praise God, even in the midst of this dry and weary land. In that very first verse, you put that first verse back up for me, Hosea says, therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her, talking about the children of Israel. There I will give her back her vineyards, and I will make the valley of trouble a door of hope. I will make the valley of trouble a door of hope. I would dare to say that when David walked into the desert on that day, that he was walking into a valley of trouble. That he felt surrounded on all sides by a mountain that he could not climb or overcome. That he was closed in, and probably felt a little claustrophobic. But if we will look at this lesson, if we will allow God to speak tenderly to us, that he has the capability of turning our valley of trouble into a door of hope. We see the significance there, though. Where did the door of hope appear? In the valley of trouble. We are going to go through times that are difficult. But if we will make the decision to hear the voice of God, if we will make the decision to lean into Him, to remember the goodness of God, to praise Him in this dark moment and in this valley and to stretch our hands up to him, then we are then opening the door for God to turn what was trouble into promise, what was desert into a vast oasis. We give God the opportunity to move in our lives and stir us up and fill us with fresh water if we will begin to stretch out for him. And I don't know anybody who doesn't, when they're in trouble, look for a way out of trouble, right? We learn this at a very early age to try to get ourselves out of trouble. We, uh, listen, children are amazing, right? And by amazing, I mean they are clever little jokers. And they will come out with some of the most clever ways to get out of trouble. Oh, goodness, so clever, right? Why did you punch your brother? because he was too close to me okay that doesn't really make sense but I see what you're going for here right we learn at this very early age to try to get ourselves out of trouble we are have a natural bent to try to figure things out ourselves correct we do ever been locked out of your house start walking around looking for windows right Start figuring out ways to get in. When we're in trouble, we have this natural desire to try to get ourselves out of it. But here's the thing about comfort. I don't know about any of you, but any of you have a really good bed, right? A really good bed. And how many of you know that if you're in a really comfortable bed, you can sleep later. You can linger longer, right? But if you want to experience an uncomfortable bed that will drive you to wake up and seek the Lord at four in the morning, I mean, as soon as your eyes open, you're up. Please come with me next summer to Youth America when we will sleep on a mattress that is this thick that has bars underneath it so that you actually, by the end of the week, have bruises in the area where the bars were. See, our discomfort drives us to get up and seek, but our comfort will allow us to linger where we are. And sometimes we can be in a place that's really comfortable and everything is smooth and everything feels good and we will linger there for a while. We will become comfortable and set in, right? But sometimes God has to lead us out into the wilderness and he has to get us to a place where we are not comfortable. We are actually in extreme discomfort so that we will then jump up and begin to seek him. Because if I'm comfortable, I'm going to chill. But if I am discomforted and if things are not exactly the way they should be. It drives me to seek after God. Now, does God want bad things for you? No, he wants good things for his children. But is there a significance to a place where we are so desperate that we let our feelings die and we let our circumstances grow quiet and we focus in on the voice of God? Absolutely. God uses those times to teach us and to draw us closer to him. So God doesn't want you to suffer, but can he use your suffering to draw you closer to him? Absolutely. Did God desire that David would go through the things he went through? No. But in the midst of that suffering and those times, we were given a model for how to persevere and endure and draw closer to God, even in the desert. I want to end with this scripture, Isaiah 58. This scripture has been really significant to me um, lately. Um, I've read it a hundred times, but not too long ago, um, Pastor Haley actually felt this scripture laid on her heart from one of our friends. She sent it to her as just an encouragement. And as she showed it to me, I just began to read it over and over and over again. I just began to read it. And slowly but surely, it became not just a verse, but it became a prayer. It became more than just a passage of scripture. It became a prayer. And I want to tell you that there's significance in praying the word of God. And if you struggle for um, how, what to pray about or how to pray, then just get out the Bible and begin to pray the Word of God. His Word does not return void. And so even when we in our flesh don't know what to pray, if we will pray His Word, there is power in that. And this verse became a prayer for me. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. I wanna pause right there on that part. You see, here's what's great though. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. Listen, you're gonna be in a sun-scorched land. We weren't promised to live in a garden lush and full of life. In fact, from the moment sin entered in, Adam and Eve were put out of the perfect Garden of Eden. We were never promised some perfect, happy life with everything going right all the time. Here in America, we're so blessed. We have no concept of what suffering is like. We have no concept of it. But listen, for us, we are in a sun-scorched and weary land. And the world will provide us no refreshing, no amount of money, no promotion, no relationship, no marriage, no friendship, no child. Nothing can refresh you. Nothing can make everything right in your world. The only thing that can do that is a relationship with God who will satisfy your real needs, not your wants and the things you think you need, but your real needs can be satisfied by God in a sun-scorched land, and he will strengthen your frame, and He you will become like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. We're going to go through the desert. If you have never been through a time of desert in your life, be thankful, but be aware. We all go through them. From those of us who have had relationships with God since we were little to those who have, are new to the Christian faith, no matter where we are, we all go through seasons of desert. But the promises of God are that he will meet us, he will satisfy our needs, he will strengthen us, and he will cause us to have rivers of living water. But there's a purpose for that. So here's my call, my challenge for you today, is that when you are in a desert place, as we have all been in our lives, And when you begin to allow God to speak to you, when God begins to refresh you and restore you, you need to know that there is a purpose for this. In verse 12, it says, your people, that's talking about us, your people will rebuild the ancient ruins, and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. Let me tell you, there are people in our community and our families that are walking around with no spiritual shelter. They may have a $500,000 house, a beautiful home and the nicest cars, but spiritually, they are living on the streets. And there may be people who are walking around and they've got the best clothes and the nicest things. But you know what? Their life is broken walls held together with duct tape and medicines and doctor's appointments and questions. And they're just putting on this shiny face. And they just keep painting over the walls hoping nobody will notice. But their walls are broken. Our whole world is living in a desert. It's a dry and weary land and their foundations are broken and they're living shamelessly on the streets with no protection from the enemy and no protection from the constant barrage of the enemy against their lives. They are broken and they are homeless, even with the finest things that the world has to offer. But we are called to rebuild the ancient ruins and raise up the age old foundations. You know what that age old foundation is? It's Jesus Christ. It's the church. Upon this church, upon this rock I will build my church. The church was the single first big thing that God set out to do through Jesus was to begin to build his church because his church is that age-old foundation that is called to repair broken walls and restore the streets with no dwellings. So today, you may not be in a desert place. And that's okay if you're not, it's great. I don't feel like I'm in a desert place right now. Now, if you had asked me that question at different points within the past year or two, you may have gotten a different answer. I'm thankful to not be in a desert place right now. But I know there will be times again where I am. I know there will be times again where I will feel dry and disconnected, where I will be desperate for God. And so today, whether you are there or whether you are not, can we all acknowledge the one need that unites us as humanity, and that is thirst. As the world thirsts for water, as our flesh thirsts for water, our souls and the souls of all of humanity are thirsty for Jesus Christ. They are thirsty. They need to drink deep from Him. They need to draw Him in, and we can show them how to do that. So stand with me today. And for a moment, let's drink deep the way that David did. So for a moment, I'm going to ask you just to close your eyes and to think